0: Well, if you have a Bible or a phone on you, Ecclesiastes chapter 6, beginning in verse 10, is where we're going to be together today. Uh, It is good to see all of you this morning, specifically some of you new faces as we... Uh, Either close out or begin a new week, uh, depending on how you see it. And I'm not sure how your past week was. Mine was pretty good. On uh, uh, Tuesday, uh, my wife Erin and I, we got away for a little bit of a date night. We got to go to uh, the Walt Disney Concert Hall downtown, which if you haven't been, is absolutely incredible. Uh, For Jose Gonzalez, he is a Swedish indie folk artist, son of Argentinian immigrants. Jose Gonzalez, anyone? There we are. And so he's a Swedish, son of Argentinian immigrants, and so his song, his album, like you listen through, they go through like one track will be in Spanish, the next in English, the next in Swedish, and back and forth, and all of them are awesome. I was sitting in traffic on the way there, and I realized like, man, I've been listening to this guy for 12 years, like all the way back to, he was on a compilation called Dark Was the Night. You're welcome, just go search that this week. But then also I found about uh, right around that time that that came out, like the year following, he did the main song for the Western video game, Red Dead Redemption. Maybe that got some more of you, there we go. There we go, good morning everyone. So anyway, we, uh, was so I was really excited on the way. So we uh, first got dinner at uh, Grand Central Market, Sticky Rice, got some Thai food, and then we went, and then this incredible venue with just him, his guitars, and pedals, and everybody around. It was awesome as he begins to play through everything. And so halfway through the set, though, he gets to um, uh, my favorite song off his new album. And so he starts playing through it. And on the other side of the theater, I mean, like, so here I am sitting, on the other side of the theater, somebody's phone goes off. And not just goes off, it wasn't a call, it was, it was a wireless emergency alert. This is what you get when, you know, an Amber Alert, or, you know, we used to get COVID updates throughout on all of this, what my five-year-old Emma calls the scary sound. We'll just be driving in the house. You know, you know the sound that I'm talking about. So this begins, and immediately what begins to happen within seconds, that one phone becomes this overwhelming scream of thousands of phones, all starting and ending that's silver, you know, the, the, uh, the amber alert. And so then, of course, it shows up on mine. Uh, silver alert, missing or endangered elderly, details right here, you know. And so, but the whole point was, here you have, he's trying to play this concert. And over the sound of his own guitar and his singing are all these thousands of phones screaming. And so what's interesting is, I mean, he tried, I mean, just, just completely out of his control. There's nothing he could do. And even for us, there's nothing we could do. I'm, like, sitting on my phone. I'm, like, trying to, like, turn it off, and I can't get, like, I, I'm positive I tur- it turned itself back on. Because over the course of the show, my phone went off three times with this same silver, silver alert. And it seemed like everybody else, this was happening. And so it was so interesting to watch. Jose Gonzalez is, you know, at first he tries just playing through it, you know, like you would if somebody's phone went off. But he, he, he couldn't. It was too loud. And so then he, he ends up stopping and he waits. He doesn't have his phone, so he doesn't know that it's a silver alert. For all, he made a joke about Putin. He had no idea what was going on. And after this five minutes of waiting and they kept coming in, he ends up, he, he says, I'll see you guys next year. I'm gonna, I'll come back later. And he gets up and goes to put his guitar down. And somebody on the staff comes out and reassures him. And so he waits until it kind of stops enough. And then he begins playing again. But the whole thing is, as he continues playing, the whole back half of the set, these, these, these alerts keep coming in, one after the other. And then it starts messing with my brain to even, like, more high-pitched keys. I'm like, there's another one, right? Three times over. And, and just, what do you what, what do? You do? when something is completely out of your control. I I was watching this happen, and as I've been thinking about over the week, it's just this little potent example of I think what many of us have been feeling over the course of kind of our series in Ecclesiastes, the series of smoke and mirrors. Because over the course of this book, the first half that we've been up to in this point is the preacher, or as we've been calling him, the the deconstructor, has been making us pay attention to the fact that all of life is, as he puts it, vanity. It is smoke and mirrors. It's it's, it's, uh, heavily is the Hebrew word, it's fleeting or illusory and we, and we just get frustrated because we try to get our hands around life but it's, nothing is satisfying or significant or lasting and, and so what do we do? And so for many of us reading the Deconstructor's words, kind of like Jose Gonzalez, this thing that's completely out of your control, many of us in the face of the unpredictability and chaos of life, we just try playing through it but we can't. Some of us just try to push through, we try to maybe wait it out, some of us just give up. And today as we move into the back half of the book, the Deconstructor, specifically in the first three verses of what we're about to read, it's like he's the staff guy that comes out and reassures us. Like, it's, it's not the end of the world. It is, but it's not. Like, it's, it's the, it might be the end of the show as you expected. It might be the end of the life as you expected it, but that doesn't mean that the show is over. And he calls us to keep playing, but with new expectations. And so Ecclesiastes chapter 6, would you join me in standing, if you're able, as we read from the Scriptures today? If you're new with us, we re, uh, stand when we read the scriptures in the same way that someone might uh, kneel when they pray or raise their hands in worship. A simple way of acknowledging with our bodies that when the people of Jesus gather around the scriptures, uh, there's something that, that profound that happens. It's a special moment. So Ecclesiastes chapter 6 beginning in verse 10. Let's, uh, let's see what the deconstructor says here as we move into the back half of the book. Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity, and what is the advantage of man or mankind? For who knows what is good for humans while they live the few days of their vain lives, which passes like a shadow? For who can tell a human what will be after them under the sun? A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It's better for a person to hear the rebuke of a wise person than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools consumed in the fire. This also is vanity, smoke, and mirrors. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts their heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges itself in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it's not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance. It's an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of the one who has it. But consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity be in the day of prosperity be joyful, and in the day of adversity consider, God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. In my vain life, that is in my smoke and mirrors life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly wise, and do not make yourself too righteous. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God will come out with both of them. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man, more than ten rulers who are in a city. Surely there's not a righteous man on earth who does the good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows the many times you yourself has cursed others. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I'm going to be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom in the scheme of things, to know the wickedness of folly and foolishness that is madness. But what I did find is something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken away by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the Deconstructor, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of all things, which my, whole, my, whole, my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I have found, but a woman among all of these I have not found. See, this alone I have found, that God made mankind upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Who is like the wise? Who knows the interpretation of a thing? A person's wisdom makes their face shine, and the hardness of their face is changed. Let's pray. Father, we uh, come to you in a uh, just a big mess of, uh, of emotions and places that we've come from, uh, God, as varied as, as the number of people in this room. And God, as we prayed in our, in our pre-service uh, prayer time this morning, just acknowledging all of the different emotions that have brought us here today. God, we are tired, we are exhausted, we're distracted, we're doubtful, we're anxious, we might be excited, we might be ready to hear, we might be dragged here. And regardless of, of where we're at, we pray that you would meet us. And God, that you would instruct us today in a way of life that is in keeping with the reality of this world. And help us to find exactly what we've been looking for. In the name we pray. Amen. We'll go ahead and take a seat. Now, to be sure, well, let's just, let's just start with, hey, Congratulations. Enjoy the sitting down. That was, a, that was a big passage we just made our way through. And the next couple weeks, they don't, they're not going to get much shorter. And, and I'll just say, this isn't even my notes, that what we're doing here is we're intentionally doing big flows of Scripture here so that we can follow the line of the author's intent of what they're saying. Very regularly preaching, we'll get up and we'll just do like one verse. And then we'll just, you know, 30, 40 minutes on one verse. That's great, but very easily we can miss the intent of what's being written. And so the hope here is we stick with the deconstructor's thought and not kind of impose what we want him to say. We want to ride with, with what he's saying. So let's let's go back to the beginning in chapter 6 at the end there in verses 10 through 12. Because what we find here is kind of a movement from the first six chapters, what we've been in over the first half of this season series, where he talks about the vanity of life, where he says, you know, whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, right? He's That humans aren't able to dispute the fact that life is vanity. He says, you're not strong enough. Humans can't change the fact that everything in this life, there's nothing satisfying, significant, or lasting, and no matter how strong you think you are, you can't change that. In verse 11, he says, and the more that you talk about it, the more is vanity. So he goes, I could keep talking about all the smoke and mirror stuff I've been doing over the past six chapters. It's time for me to move now into the question of verse 12. What is good for a person while they live their few days of their vain life? This life that passes like a shadow, that you have no control over, what's the best thing for you to do? That's what he's going to move into over the rest of our series. And so this really is the turning point of the book. The first six chapters, he's been establishing the reality of smoke and mirrors and and the fact that everything in this life is vanity. You have no control over it. It's not lasting, significant, or satisfying. And in the final six, he's now going to try to help us move into how do we find the good life in a life that's unpredictable? I mean, here's the thing. Even if this is your first Sunday and you haven't been with us through Ecclesiastes, you know the experience of your life falling apart and the fact that this happens so regularly and you don't have any control over it. So how do you live? And that's, that's kind of what the deconstructor is looking at today. So moving into chapter 7, you remember that poem of this is, you know, that. And he starts comparing all these things. You'll see it behind me. Is, you know, he has this, this really nice list. But here's the thing. Everything on the right side with maybe the exception of the first and the bottom are the things that we would, we would probably want. Maybe not the praise of fools, but like people's praise is pretty awesome. Definitely better than rebuke, Right? And, like, a good name, maybe, but, like, the good oil or good ointment. I mean, everything on the right is, like, it's like a birthday party. It's, like, birth, new things, excitement. And, like, the gift is, like, you know, they went to Aesop and got, like, you know, all your favorite, like, hand creams and stuff or whatever. And you're, like, this is great. And the, the pride is, it's interesting, you can translate pride there as, like, tallness. Like, the Liverance Brothers, the idea of, like, this, like, high posture and stance. Uh, so it's not so much pride, but it's... It's the the pride of spirit. This this experience of feeling pr- proud in, in maybe even a good sense. So you know everything on the right side is exactly the things that we would want out of life. But what does the deconstructor say through the poem? He says actually it's everything that's on the left side that's better. He says everything that's better. He says yeah good name is better than oil and maybe we'd agree with that. But then all the rest of these are the ones that we would challenge him on. Death is better than birth. Mourning better than feast. He says a. A funeral wake is better than a birthday party. Sorrow is better than laughter. Being rebuked is better than being, something being finished. is better. We get excited about new things, and he says things being done are what we should be excited about. Why are the things that are the opposite of what we would want out of life the things that are best for us? In, in verses 2 and 3, he says he says Why? He says it's better to go into the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting because this is the end of all mankind. The living will lay it to heart. And then in in verse 3, he says what? That by sadness of face, that is all the things on the left side, it's actually that way that the heart is made glad. So in in his thought, the deconstructor says that these hard things, those things that maybe you don't want out of life, are the things that are a wake-up call to reality they remind you and set before you the very priorities and the right expectations that you should have. Your life is not in your control. You are going to die just like the house of mourning that you go into. Sorrow is a part of this life, and if you try to hide from it, you you actually aren't seeing rightly. For those of us who find the better in these wake-up calls, in verses 4 and 5, he talks about it. What, What does he call this living within these right expectations is wisdom. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. And the idea behind the rebuke is it's coming from a wise person. It's moving you in the direction of wise. Or being of wisdom. So what he says here is that you know, when you lose your job, when there's a diagnosis that comes and hits you, when you find yourselves at the end of a season of life or, or maybe when you're in the midst of a rebuke, a hard conversation where someone's calling out something in you that is destructive to the relationship or your own life, the deconstructor says these things are good, not in and of themselves. He's not like, yay, funeral wakes, that's exciting. He doesn't see these as good in and of themselves, but he sees these as as an entryway into a deeper wisdom with your life, as an open door into finding the right uh, expectations and priorities, a clarity about reality. He continues in verses thirteen and fourteen, well, Excuse me, in verses 9 and 10, but we're getting ahead of ourselves. As he continues into 9 and 10, he starts to detail the cl- that, that clarity of wisdom versus kind of the blindness of the foolish. And this is something he began back in, in verses 13 and 14 of chapter 2, back in the beginning of the book. Where he said that uh, there's more gain in wisdom than being foolish. As in, what's, what's the comparison of wisdom and foolishness? There's more gain in light than darkness. And the wise person has eyes in their head, but the fool walks around in darkness. So he says that if, if we get wisdom, if we have a right way of seeing from the hard things of life, that the, what that does is that helps us see the reality of the world. It may not be pretty, but it keeps us from stumbling and tripping and falling all over ourselves. When we hide, when we seek to protect ourselves, when we walk in wisdom, it's like me walking through my house at night with all the lights off, with the landmines of like Legos and toys and clothes like all around me, like normally I'm the last person to go to bed, and so I go through that as I turn everything off, and then nine times out of ten, I end up stepping on a Lego. I end up bumping into something. I you know bust open my toe on the on the edge of a table or something, and I just you know feeling my way through in the dark of like trying to like I thought I saw it over here because I don't want to step on something. And the, the deconstructor says, that is what it's like to live with an, an, a not real view of, of reality. To be like overly in the space of praise and celebration and life is happy, life is good. He says, that's the fool. That's, the, that's a dumb way to live because what you're going to find yourself doing is constantly tripping and stumbling and, and busting your proverbial toe open. Look at this in verses 9 and 10. Look at the experience of this. This is exactly how I feel when I walk through the house at night. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry. For anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it's not from wisdom that you ask this. What the deconstructor says is those who are walking around without the wake-up call that the hard things of life brings, they constantly are finding themselves getting frustrated and angry over the fact that nothing is lasting. They're they're, they're tripping over the fact that nothing is satisfying. They keep bumping into things that aren't significant. They're stubbing their toe on nostalgia. Oh, the good old days as they continue to bump into things. They're blind to reality. And so this is the thing is is what the deconstructor is trying to say is a life that is overly focused on the right-hand column, the things that we would want of parties, of people praising us, of laughter and, and pride and newness. You are living with the lights off. You are living within the Mirage factory. Andrew Sullivan, writing about all of this in New York Magazine says, I've used this quote multiple times because it's just that good. He says this, our modern world tries extremely hard to protect us from experiencing existential moments. Now, remember, the good oil, the parties, you know, the, 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 the new things, and it's just like this is a modern version of Ecclesiastes. Netflix, air conditioning, sex apps, Alexa, Kale, Pilates, Spotify, Twitter, these things are designed to create a world in which we rarely get a second to confront ultimate meaning. The left-hand column, those hard things. Until then, a tragedy occurs, a death happens, or a diagnosis strikes. See, Andrew Sullivan, it's like he's mirroring the deconstructor here. He says, our modern world and Los Angeles as an extension of that is great at giving us distractions from the very wake-up calls that we need to live wisely. And if you just go from, maybe it's not party to party and Aesop, you know, hand creams and oils, but if you're going from uh, air conditioning to Netflix to Alexa to Pilates and and your life is so, you are constantly moving away from the wake-up call that you need. And so in verses 11 and 12 of chapter 7, the deconstructor says, how to live, what's the best way to live? Wisdom is better. A life with wisdom is better than non-wisdom. It's better than a foolish life of walking around in the dark. You living with proper priorities and expectations is an advantage. It protects you. It preserves you. With the lights on, you can see the mess on the floor, and you can at least know that you're about to step on a Lego. It may not be pretty to see the mess of reality, but it's better than walking around in the dark, the deconstructor says. And so because wisdom is better, he invites you and I, don't ignore wisdom. Don't ignore it. For some of you, this is precisely what you need to hear because your life is one of tripping through life, frustrated and angry or nostalgic because smoke and mirrors, the non-lasting, the the, the, the brokenness, the the... The, the hevel, the smokiness of life, of, of the fleetingness and the, the illusory nature of your life. It just it keeps getting you angry and frustrated as you keep tripping over things. And, and you've just maybe given up on wisdom when a world is chaos, but you just keep stumbling through. And you're maybe counting the days until something else blows up in your life. The deconstructor would call you, hey, turn on the lights. See reality rightly and live within those expectations, and so how can we grow in this kind of wisdom? There's a whole book of the Bible just a couple pages earlier called Proverbs. This is where we were last fall. But I think what's pr- really interesting is the deconstructor gives an invitation of how to grow in, in, in this kind of wisdom. And, and he says in two ways. The first is to embrace grief and loss in your life and to welcome the rebuke of the wise. If you want to grow in this kind of wake-up call, if you want to, you know, the dimmer switch, turn the lights on to see the mess around so that you can have some kind of appropriate expectations for your life, the two things that you need to do is embrace grief and loss. Like he says, lay this to heart. Whenever you encounter loss, whenever you're in the moment of grief, to really receive that as a wake-up call, this is reality. To not go back to my life as it were, but, but to every single time that I find myself with some loss or some grief, what is, what is this wake-up call that's, that's developing within me? What does it mean to live in light of this? And then similarly, to welcome the rebuke of the wise. To receive a wake-up call, not just to the, the stuff on the floor in the world, but the stuff, the mess within you. To have trusted people that know you well enough that they can speak into your life and go, man, I, I see the way that you're relating to this. And I, I've, I've noticed the way that you talk to this person. I've noticed the way that you, you handle your money or the way that you, you, you carry yourself. And that's not wise. And you go, okay, yeah, you're right. To welcome that instead of defend it. Because, again... To do that is to continue to walk in the darkness. And so the deconstructor says, man, you want to grow in wisdom, embrace grief and loss, not as good in and of themselves, but to look up for the wake-up call and to welcome the rebuke of wise people around you. He says those who live within this kind of realistic wisdom with their life, they will find that their life is better. It's an advantage. It protects them. It preserves them. As he says in verses 2 and 3, their heart will be made glad through a realistic way of life. Wisdom is better. Don't ignore it. But then we reach the screeching tires of 7, 13 through 14. What does he say? Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? I.E. not you. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, consider God's made one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. This is the screeching tires after just setting up that wisdom is better. Here, he, he crashes into the wall that you have no control. Your wisdom, as better as it might be, has no control over your life. He links this to being the way that God has ordered things. And this is a whole side tangent that we could go down. But I would just invite, if you're going, what do you mean that God has made a world where this kind of stuff happens? I would point you to Romans chapter 8 and watch what the Apostle Paul does as he talks about how our world has been subjected to futility. This is his language for, um, for, for the, the vanity of Ecclesiastes. That God has subjected this, is what's going on here, not... Um, all of this done, not just for the sake of doing it, but in hope of redemption and working through it in the midst of it. And so that would be a side to, if you're going, well, wait a minute, God has done this? Yes, but there's a more nuanced conversation about about the brokenness of this world and how God has been relating to it. But the whole point of what the deconstructor is saying here is as better as wisdom is, it has no control over your life, which is what he continues into in verse 15. He says, in my smoke and mirrors, my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. There's a a wicked person who actually prolongs their life in their evil doing. He says this better advantage, protection, preserving wisdom is, I have seen that those who live right, it actually doesn't promise the good life. In fact, I've seen the very opposite thing happen to them. Growing up, I had uh, my friend Skyler who lived, you know, down and around the corner from my house. And so we went to the same middle school together and we're kind of the same youth group buddies. And his parents let him play Halo and my parents didn't. And so we uh, would regularly do like video game all-nighters over at his house to play Halo. And so we kind of, you know, our lives kind of were together for that season and then kind of, you know, relatively stayed in touch as we've, Uh, begin to move in different directions. And where I kind of moved in the direction of ministry and working in the local church, Skyler moved in the direction of working with at-risk, marginalized, homeless youth, helping them become self-sufficient and and just, you know, incredible story. And along that process, he uh, met who'd be his wife, Brittany, in 2015. Now, Brittany, likewise, was a saint, She worked with in ministry with children in foster care, moving them towards adoption. A lot of these children were coming out of unplanned pregnancies and even children rescued from sex trafficking. I mean, two saints, if you could just bring them together, you know, they're like, oh, they just turn into angels, right? (laughs) Alongside their wedding day, Brittany was diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma with cancer. So all, all of this going on and then her fighting with it for three years into their marriage before she passed away about four years ago at the age of 30. So this is what the deconstructor gets at. I have seen the righteous one perish in their righteousness. What kind of world is this? Where the sort of person who gives their whole life to righteousness and goodness dies at 30. What kind of world is this? Where the white, like, I mean, you just, you turn on your, this is, this is the world. What kind of world is this? When, when the wicked are the ones that their wickedness prolongs their life. That they find riches and praise and honors for their The the very thing that should be the thing that kills them. You see, the, the deconstructor for the past few verses has just established that wisdom is better, but here now he moves. The deconstructor starts lamenting that though wisdom is better, it's broken. There is some glitch in the system where wisdom doesn't work like it should. That you can be righteous, you can be wise, you can plan your whole life out, and you can get hit by a bus on the way out or hit with Hodgkin's lymphoma. That this is, it, The world doesn't work the way that it's seeming it should. We understand that wisdom, if you're a wise and righteous person, that life should go good for you. And if you're not, that it shouldn't. But this, this, this law does not work here under the sun. For many of us, myself included, this is the delusion of control that we live under. That I still believe at some level, if I'm good, if my life is good, if I plan, if I do the right things, then life will go good for me. And the deconstructor is trying to shake us awake, just like he did with those who ignore wisdom, to say, that's not how the world works. And you will stumble just as much as those who ignore wisdom. If you expect that that's how that works. And so wherever you're at, within Los Angeles, we have all sorts of ways to, to, to relate to wisdom this way. We do this with work, we do this with college, we do this with health, we do this with parenting. If I plug in all the right information data points in the way that I parent my kids, then they should sleep through the night. And guess what? Kids don't work that way. You can literally live your whole life as a juice cleanse and live on a Peloton and and you just, aneurysm in your sleep. The world doesn't work this way. You can put in all of the hard work and you can have the getting things done journal and and you can still get laid off. You, just, there's no process. There's so much that's out of your control, and the, the delusion of this kind of wisdom process is that if I get all, if I do these right things, here being a gathering of, of largely people that follow Jesus today, there is a deluded thought of religious, the, the the myth of religious fulfillment. More on this next week. That following Jesus will result in like happy go woo me and Jesus, and it's not the world. It's not the way the world works. So the question is, if if wisdom is better but broken, how should we relate to wisdom? Verse 16 and 17, I love this. This is so fun because it can be really read out of context. He says this, don't be overly righteous and don't make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? So it's like, okay, I'm just going to make a schedule here. So uh, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, Saturday, we'll say, those are going to be my wicked, foolish days. Tuesday, Thursdays, and I guess we'll give Jesus Sundays. Those are going to be my wisdom righteous days. Is that what he's getting at? Like, hey, kind of, you know, just what it seems like he's getting at here, to use some of the language we've begun so far, is is what he says in verse 17 is, is don't be a fool. He says don't ignore wisdom here. Like he just said a moment ago. Hey, don't ignore wisdom. Don't be a fool. But in that kind of don't, be overly wise I think he just says not just don't ignore wisdom but also because it's broken don't idolize it don't put all of your hope in wisdom don't make it the source of everything because what does he say it'll destroy you if you ignore wisdom you'll die early if you're stupid you'll probably die early but if you idolize and ch- if you think that you living after getting enough wisdom is going to make things go perfectly you'll destroy yourself and everyone around you he describes this as he moves into 19 and 22 Because similar to ignoring wisdom, those that idolize it, they too will stumble in the dark. They're not gonna fare much better. In verse 19, you'll see behind me. He says, wisdom gives strength to the wise man, more than 10 rulers who are in a city. Now in our democratic age, we're like, yeah, that that, that sounds positive to us. More strength than 10 rulers, like I'm gonna be a wise person. Nah, man, monarchy. You got 10 rulers, you know what that is? That is chaos. That is 10 rulers all fighting for who takes the chair. And the deconstructor says, if you have too much wisdom, you'll have more strength than 10 kings all fighting for the throne. You're, you will find it in an overwhelming mess of conflicting and confusing voices in your mind. Some of you live this way. You read all the parenting books, and then you're, you've got all of these contradictory claims. You get on the internet and you're like, okay, so my work stuff, and there's some people that, doing deep work, and then there's this, how many times should I check email? When should I do this? And you just you become this big mess of all of these conflicting wisdom claims, especially with health stuff. I mean, like this is, this is what we live in. So he says, hey, if you idolize wisdom, it, it's just you're going to destroy yourself because you're going to be so confused. In verse 20, he says that if you continue to idolize wisdom, what you'll find is you're not a righteous person who, who does good all, all the time and never sins. If you chase after wisdom, you're actually going to find yourself condemned on the treadmill of not being smart enough, of not being wise enough. The more that you look for wisdom, the more you'll see how stupid you are. And then in verse 21 and 22, he says, man, I know I said welcome rebuke, but also don't go chasing it. Don't, don't make it absolute. Don't take it to heart because you'll find more cursing than you can handle. It'll, just, it'll destroy you. So he says here, I mean, you know, a moment ago, don't ignore wisdom. And here he's saying, hey, also don't, don't idolize it. This, what, this will make your life a living mess. So what can keep us from idolizing wisdom? In verse 18, he says, what? The one who fears God will come out with what he says, both of them. This kind of is, is confusing, the this and that. The idea is right before that, he said, don't be overly you know, wise and don't be overly wicked. The idea being, it's good that you should take hold of this, not idolizing wisdom. And from that, not ignoring wisdom, withhold not your hand. Take both of those things. Live in the tension between those two. And the way to do that is the one who fears God will actually be the one that has both of those things. He says, the key... To living a life where you don't ignore or idolize wisdom is to receive both of these and to live in a posture of fear of God. Now, fear of God is one of the more complicated, well, not complicated, just misunderstood themes or ideas within the scriptures. Because when we hear fear of God, what we tend to think of is like Zeus with lightning. The person who you know knows that God at any time could smite thee will neither ignore... No- the idea behind fear of God at all points whenever we come to contact with it in the scriptures is this kind of reverence and awe a posture not of going you know you're the guy with the, with the cosmic lightning but just just a simple uh, uh, just acknowledgement you are God I am not you are creator I am creation you are big I am small and so this fear is a humble, reverent trust. And, and the deconstructor says, if you walk and live with that sort of a posture, that's the key to not ignoring or idolizing wisdom. You won't ignore wisdom if you live in that kind of posture because you're going to know there's a creator that even if the world is broken has wired this world in some way. A way that, that works, that's better for the wise. But you also won't idolize it because you won't see yourself as God. I'm, I'm creation in, in a broken, create, like I, so I, I, I can't idolize, I'm not God. So the deconstructor insists, he calls us to this fear of God, not only because idolizing wisdom will destroy you, but as the deconstructor continues, he goes, not only will idolizing wisdom destroy you, you'll never find it anyway. In verses 23 and 24, look, what does he say here? He says, all of this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but what? It was far from me. It's off in the distance. On the horizon, I couldn't reach it. And then he continues, that which has been far off, and this is his he uses this far off or previously known like kind of language as his way of talking about uh, understanding things, the wisdom of things. He goes, I'm looking for wisdom, but it was deep, very deep. Who can find it out? So the deconstructor reflects on his journey. He not only sees that idolizing it will destroy you, but he sees wisdom in and of itself. It's elusive and it's hard to find. Getting the wisdom that you're looking for is a fool's errand. It's too deep to ever truly and fully get. Why? 26 and 28. Here here it is. You were waiting for this. You're like, all right, Ryan, what does this mean? 26 to 28. Let's just reread it and then we'll kind of look at this. He says, I'm looking for wisdom. And and it's so deep and far off, I couldn't find it. So I turned my heart to know and to search out and seek wisdom in the scheme of things, to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And what do I find? Something more bitter than death. And what is that? (laughs) The woman whose heart is snares and nets, and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says that he construct her, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme, the the, the, the rhythm, the plan of everything, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I, I could not find it. One man among a thousand I found. I was a pro at Where's Waldo, but a woman I could not find. So what in the world? Like, with first reading, is this just like He's just like talking about wisdom and he's like, and by the way, I hate women. Like there's like this weird misogynistic thing that comes up. What is going on here? Who's this bitter woman who's like worse than death is what he says. Her heart are snares and nets and prison chains. And who's the impossible to find woman? There's like, he's like, there's some good woman out there, but I can't find her. Like she doesn't exist. Some say that the bitter woman is this way of talking about like the adulterous woman and the hard to find woman is a good wife. But this is left field as all get out of so. After a whole chapter of talking about wisdom and foolishness to then go, and while we're at it, like, you know, like this left field tangent. Now, here's the thing. If you were with us last fall through our Proverbs series and Wisdom's Way, my hope is, is that right now there should be a light bulb moment for you where this really confusing passage for most people on the first reading actually is beginning to make sense. This is the benefit of reading the Bible. The more that you read it, the more that confusing parts actually make a lot of sense. If you were with us in Proverbs, Ecclesiastes' complimentary pair, folly is perf- foolishness is personified as what? A woman worse than death who drags the simple off with her to death. And wisdom is personified as this woman who's incredible, but she's so hard to find. And so with this understanding, this is not left field. This is not some misogynistic rant or him ranting about, you know, he's just like, you know, I can't find a wife. Like he's just like, you know, some kind of weird guy on, on you know, Twitter ranting or something. This is not left field, this is the deconstructor. He's continuing in his thoughts about wisdom and folly and he picks up the language from the book of Proverbs where the book of Proverbs called for you to flee, like it just says flee lady folly, get away from her and go. Mary, give your life in union with, with wisdom, with lady wisdom. And Ecclesiastes now stands next to Proverbs and goes, I tried and I can't. Proverbs says, go, get away from folly, find wisdom, and life will go good for you in the land. There'll be blessing and joy and happiness. Woo, like go for it. And Ecclesiastes is like, uh-uh. It didn't work that way. I, I, I turned my heart, he said at the beginning in, in verse 25. I turned, 20, 25, I turned my heart to find her and I could not find her. She eludes me. Wisdom, I can't seem to find it. I could find one man in a thousand. I'm a pro, at, but I just, I could not find wisdom. And even worse, I can't get away from foolishness. She keeps dragging me off. I go out my front door every day looking for wisdom and foolishness meets me in the streets and her chains wrap around me and drag me off to death once again. Why can't we get free? Verse 29. See this alone I have found. God made humans upright, but they have sought out many schemes. The deconstructor here begins to lament over the human condition. He sees that that the brokenness of wisdom is not, is not wisdom's fault, but that there is something broken within the human psyche where we continue to, as he says, run after schemes. We, we chase after these alternate solutions to living in a posture of, of reverent trust, of fearing God. We chase after any and every way that we can do this. And so the, he just, I mean, this... Bring all this together, chapter 7. He looks and he sees our, our ignorance of wisdom, our hiding from the wake-up call of wisdom. We do this to our peril. Whether we're chasing pleasure or just less pain in our life, it is the place where folly is more than happy to meet us and drag us away. Rather than trusting God and leaning into wisdom, we get dragged off. But also on the other side is when we idolize wisdom and we chase after this, we find that that search is futile. It is a fruitless search, which ends then because of the fact that we're doing it all in our power, in our wisdom, us too, being carried away and led off by foolishness. And then the chapter ends. Chapter 7 ends with this lament over the human condition. Wisdom, it's your wisdom, my wisdom, it is smoke and mirrors. It is vanity. It is elusive and is fleeting. Your wisdom is not lasting. It's not strong enough. It's not significant enough. It's, and it will never be satisfying. And in the same way, you trying to say, well, I just can live without wisdom. I'm going to you know, ride by the seat of my pants and, and the same is true. You'll find just as much darkness. The deconstructor says, wisdom, it's better, but it's broken. And even in its betterness, we can only find seasons of wisdom working before we follow foolishness again. So this sits between you and I. This this posture that at the end of chapter 7 leaves us asking, okay, now what? Just better but broken and kind of, you know, I guess even in the midst of trying to find it, you won't? This leaves us asking, what we need in this broken world of our broken wisdom is is if we can't find wisdom, we can, where's wallow all day long, but we can't find wisdom. What do we do when we cannot go out and find or gain, attain, and get the better wisdom that we need? And it seems that the only answer, the only solution, would be some way in which wisdom can come to us. Some way that that if I, I go out and I can't find it, I need wisdom to come and stand right in front of me. Because I can't find it. And the good news for you and me today is precisely the good news. As Paul, the apostle, wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, though many seek wisdom only to find foolishness and folly, it pleased God to save and claim and redeem those who believe in Jesus Christ, who is, he says, the wisdom of God. You see, Ecclesiastes says, man, I guess better are those who, who mourn, uh, for they will receive a better but broken wisdom. And, and the invitation of what the good news, where the is leading us is some greater movement, some greater work of God, where, where Jesus, as he says in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are those who mourn, not because you'll just receive a better but broken wisdom, but you'll be comforted, Jesus says comforted, this this new life that begins to happen within us as we find the wisdom that we've been looking for in the person of Jesus, finding us, the wisdom that doesn't just turn on the lights to the the brokenness of this world, but also has come to help us clean it up, to make something right within us, to make us new so we can no longer be foolish people. The apostle Paul writes in Titus chapter three, man, is this good. He says, for we ourselves were once foolish, foolish. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done in righteousness, not through your wisdom, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of resurrection life. Amid the brokenness of your life, amid the brokenness of this world, what you need is far more than just better but broken wisdom. What you need is, is, is restoration. As Paul just wrote in, in, in Titus, regeneration and renewal of your hearts because that's the main, what the deconstructors just laid out. That's the main problem. God has made us upright, but we seek after schemes and crafts and alternatives to trusting God. And so what we need is something to renew, regenerate, restore our hearts to that trusting posture. And that is precisely what has happened through the work of Jesus. And this doesn't come through your wisdom. But through what does he say? He just keeps repeating it in different language. The loving kindness of God, the mercy of God, the grace of God. No matter how smart or stupid you are or feel you may be, the regenerating work of the true wisdom of God, Jesus, is something that is pure gift. So you might be here and you think that you've got your whole life put together. The, the, The only solution for you is gift. Is the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And guess what? If you feel like you're the stupidest person that you know and you keep hitting your head against every single thing in your life, the good news for you is that same wisdom is not for you to go read a book and figure this out. It is to experience the Holy Spirit work poured out by Jesus in you. This is the key to finding true wisdom and a true good life. That as we come to Jesus, we find through him, through his death on the cross, Jesus takes that, that heart of ignoring wisdom and he enters into where our ignorance leads us, into the darkness. You could say that the, the the chains of folly that have been wrapped around us, dragging us off to death, Jesus comes and he takes them off us and he puts them on himself. And he gets dragged into death ultimately so that he can, he can kill it. And so what this means then is that as we move into that posture of embracing loss and grief, like we talked about a moment ago, of, of welcoming rebuke from wise people, what happens in these moments is more than just us finding a clarity to reality like we talked about, we actually find that this is where Jesus, the wisdom of God, finds us and joins us and meets us. In your grief and your loss, that is more than just a wake-up call to reality. That is the very basis and place that the Spirit of God, the Comforter, wants to meet you. And in the rebuke of wise people, that those hard words, when people call you out on your stuff, that is not just a place of you seeing yourself for all of your mess. That's the place that Jesus wants to meet you and, and actually died In that moment, while we were still sinners, the Apostle Paul writes, this is when Christ died for us, while you were still stupid. And so in those moments when you experience the grief and loss and rebuke, that is not something to flee from. That's the very place Jesus wants to meet you. Even more than that, through his resurrection, this renews those of us who idolize our wisdom. Because what the resurrection proclaims to us is your wisdom can't beat death. At the end of the day, as wise as you are, you're going to die, and it's going to be over. And the one wisdom that can change any of that is the wisdom of God, Jesus Christ. Because in his resurrection power, he does have an answer to the chaos and death of this world. And so I can give up on just trying that if I get enough wisdom, my life is going to go great. It won't, and that's okay. I have a resurrection trust that is the baseline. That is my source of wisdom. And so this again moves into reverent trust just like we saw a bit ago, that fear of God because this is the solution once again to keep us from idolizing wisdom as we identify not only am I not God, you are but also the hope of eternal life becomes the thing that keeps me from idolizing wisdom because I'm not gonna be able to get that through my own. And so if I've got resurrection life over here in Jesus that means that I can hold my broken but better wisdom so much more lightly because it's not resurrection. Resurrection. And so all of this leads to then this resurrection is, man, I, I don't know how else to, to process through this, but there is something to be said about the fact that those all oh, the better thens in verses one through eight back at the beginning of better is the mourning and the death and the feasting and then the other side is then the death. It's almost as if the deconstructor and now in light of the resurrection wants to move us from, we have to enter in through the mourning, the rebuke, And all of that, so that on the other side, we can then actually experience the life and the joy and the laughter and the praise that's actually worthwhile. We have to go through our own little death and resurrection descent and ascent in order to experience the sort of life that we've made for. The problem is that most of us take a shortcut, and we take the limited versions of this when we were made for so much more. And so the call here is not for you and I to go out and find wisdom but to actually lay down your ignoring or your idolizing of it as you allow yourselves to be found by wisdom, to be found by Jesus. And as we do this, this is, this is going back to Jose Gonzalez. As we do this, as we receive our wisdom as being broken but better, and we receive the comforting work of who Jesus is and what he's done through his resurrection, this, like Jose Gonzalez, allows us to sit back down in the chair on the stage and play our wisdom song. Better, Then not playing, but broken as it may be, we continue to play our song believing in the resurrection hope that we have. That this is not the end of the story, and the brokenness is is not lasting, and the better is is a testament to what's coming. As those who find wisdom, the deconstructor almost prophetically points to our future in the beginning of chapter 8, verse 1. He says, Who is like the wise? Who is like the person who has wisdom? For those of us on the other side of Jesus, the deconstructor could be saying, who is like the person who has Jesus? And he continues, and who knows the interpretation of the thing? Who knows how to interpret the meaning of life, of what's going on under here? For those of us with Jesus, I think we have a pretty clear clue at what that is. And then he continues, a man's wisdom, a person's wisdom makes their face shine and the hardness of their face is changed. Those with the wisdom of Jesus within your life, in the midst of a broken world, we can find that our faces shine, our our hard faces turn into a smile. Because once again, we're now able to just let down all of our expectations about control. We're able to turn on the lights and not hide from it to see the mess for what it is and to still proclaim resurrection in the midst of it and then that's the place where then we can smile while we step on the Legos. Let's pray.